That comes. Thanks. Yes, remain standing. <laughs> Caught you there for a moment. But we're going to start out a little differently here. Uh, this morning, I want to start out with saying the Lord's Prayer. And I know many of you know this uh, from your own uh, backgrounds, and, uh, and then uh, there may be a newer generation maybe that has not been taught the Lord's Prayer by memory. Uh, so for them, and so that no one might be embarrassed, we're going to put it up on the screen uh, for us to say it. And we are going to say it uh, in the more traditional wording. Uh, so um, I'm going to try to not say it through the microphone, so I'm going to get you started, and then you can pull out your very best Anglicanism, and we'll see how we can do with this. Sound good? All right, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And uh, the Catholics were all caught off guard by the last little part there. And how many people know the Lord's Prayer in a different language too? Just raise your hand if you know it in a different language. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. And uh, I asked Edu before the service if he knew it in English, and he didn't, just in Afrikaans. So, um, but it's a, a, I wanted to start with that because we're talking about the kingdom of God here today. And we, in that prayer, we, are, we were guided by Jesus. Of course, the, the prayer was given because the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. And he gave this template, this model for prayer. And uh, among the things that, that Jesus taught us to say was, your kingdom come. Okay, Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Which, if Jesus taught us to pray that, it means that that has not yet been fulfilled. Why would Jesus give us a request to pray to the Father for all of these uh, centuries and centuries if it was something that was fully fulfilled and it isn't it's 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 the kingdom is not yet here in fact a very critical understanding of the christian life and a critical understanding of our bibles as we study uh, study them we've talked about this before we talked about it at the outset of the series in fact is the concept of the now but not yet you've heard that phrase from me it's not original to me but it's a theological understanding of the bible the now but not yet so the kingdom of God is now. We understand that. Christians should be living out the principles of the kingdom of God as best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit in this life now. But the kingdom of God is not yet in the sense that it's pretty obvious that we're still awaiting the full expression of God's kingdom on earth. Sin and death I think you would agree with me, sin and death still have a very firm grip on this world. Would you agree with that? Sin and death still have a very firm grip on things. And so as we turn our attention now to the latter part of Revelation 11, this is our passage for today, we're going to hear in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. John's looking at events that are yet future for us. But John is seeing them and recording them as if, that they're, as if they're already fulfilled. And so for two millennia now, since Jesus taught us that prayer, we have been praying your kingdom come. And those prayers, as John sees it, have been answered and will finally completely and gloriously be answered 
in time. God's kingdom has come. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And when that day comes for us, as we continue to live out the events on the timeline, when that day comes for us, that will be an awesome day, won't it? When things are done on earth as they are in heaven. But Revelation is so much more than just a roadmap to the future. It's so much more than just a bunch of predictions about what's going to happen. The book of Revelation was written to encourage Christians in the midst of their challenges and their sufferings and living in a world that's still filled with sin and death. But also Revelation was given to us to compel us to live the Christian life now and to live it fully, to allow the kingdom of God to have a full expression in each one of our lives and for that to happen now. And so the pressing question as we look at Revelation 11 today, today, the pressing question for you and for me in this moment is, what does it mean when the kingdom of God has come to my life individually? What does it mean when the kingdom of God has come to you? And that's exactly what we're going to see in the text. And so Revelation 11, we looked at the first 14 verses last week. We're going to look at 15 through 19 and finish up the chapter here this morning. Does that sound good? It's all I have, so it's the only thing we're doing. 11, 15 to the end. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. and He shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within its temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, the kingdom of God, what does that mean? The kingdom of God in me means several things as we see it here in these verses. The first is this, grateful surrender to his reign. Grateful surrender to his reign. You're thinking of this individually. You're thinking of this in terms of your own life. As far as Revelation goes, we've been in this interlude and we now come to verse 15, which we've just read. The seventh angel blows his trumpet, which by the way, the seventh trumpet is also the third of three woes. And the seventh trumpet, as you uh, continue to read and study Revelation, the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls or the seven plagues of God's wrath. Uh, The detail of which we'll see a little bit later on, chapter 16, in fact. And as this happens, as this seventh trumpet sounds, which we've been waiting for, there's these loud voices that begin to shout in heaven. 
So the seventh trumpet does not immediately launch into the judgment itself that will come with the seventh trumpet. But instead what happens is the seventh trumpet blows and, and, and heaven spontaneously goes into worship. A worship service breaks out instead of judgment. These loud voices, maybe the angels, maybe the martyrs who are gathered around the throne, maybe the great multitudes from every nation, we've seen them already. Maybe it's all of the above. Everybody in the great throne room of God, all of them shouting together saying, the kingdom of the world, we've looked at this already, it's such a great verse. Is it already underlined in your Bibles? This would be a good time to underline it if it isn't, because this is like the third time I've said it. Must be important. Have you underlined it yet? Okay, I'll read it. I'll read it now. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. Now notice, notice the verb tense in there. Has become. That's curious, isn't it? Do you notice verb tenses? So important in all of this has become as if this is a, something that's already happened. This is, this is already accomplished. But, but John, John is seeing that he, John's 2,000 years ago from us. John's looking at visions that are still future for us. And John is using past tense verbs to communicate what he's seeing. So this is the whole issue of time again, and it's so different because what we're seeing here is what theologians and, and scholars, what, what they call eschatological time or time related to the end of all things. It's eternal time. We think in terms of chronological time. We're looking at our clocks, our watches. We're following along, tick-tock, tick-tock, seconds, minutes, hours, days. That's chronological time, and that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing eschatological time, time that is related to eternity. So things that are future are already done, already accomplished, already fulfilled. This is, this in fact, what we're seeing here is the, is the culminating moment when God's reign is fully established on earth. Some of the commentators are even saying that what he's seeing here is actually like fast forward to Revelation 20 and 21. Because it's depicting that scene. No matter where it fits or what John's seeing or, or if it's done or not done or future or past or completed, it elicits praise, it elicits, it elicits gratitude from those who are watching it happen. These loud voices say, they start with gratitude, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And I think about that gratitude. What, what else would we have to offer God but our grateful, our grateful surrender to his reign? that our gratitude would be both verbal and in terms of an action that we would surrender. That's the action part. But it would start with our words. So if we think about that word gratitude first, in what ways, in what ways do you demonstrate your gratitude to God? How do you say thank you to God? 
Words for sure, it has to start with words and let's focus on that part of it for now. Because I believe that if we speak the words, I believe if we're very intentional about what we're thankful for, that very act of speaking it out to God will change our attitudes and actions. But let's say it first. And this has to be more than a perfunctory mealtime prayer. God, I'm so thankful for all the things that you've given to me. Thank you for this food, amen. And then we say, like, I'm so thankful to God because we said that prayer. But instead, let's have some heartfelt words that show that you've actually thought about everything that he's done for you. And some of you are very good at this, so this isn't for everybody. But it has, if it has been a while since you genuinely thought through what you ought to be thankful for, then start a list this afternoon. Like as soon as you get home and you're reflecting on this message, take a few minutes and just start a list. You can be on paper. If some of you are paper people, you're analog people, you like pens, you like journals, whatever, you can start it that way. Just put it in your journal. Maybe you're, you're a digital person and you, you love your phone and everything's on your phone. Open a, open a file. Open a note at the beginning and just make it super simple, okay? We're not gonna complicate this. Thank you God for, and then just put a bullet, put a number. It's right in the thing you're thankful for. And then throughout this week, because this is like a seven-day assignment, throughout this week, every single moment that you have where you think, you know what I mean, I need to thank God for that. That's something else I need to thank God for. You write it down. As soon as you think about it. Now, if you're driving, no. Voice memo or something, send yourself a text. But don't forget the moment. Keep this, this list close at hand. Add to it all week. Every time you think of something, write it down. Don't say, listen, if you're at all like me, do not say, any other procrastinators in the room, please confess your sin. I'm like that. If I don't think of it, if I don't write it down, if I thought it, I don't write it down, I don't remember it. I'm 58, that's only getting worse. <laughs> write it down. You're in a meeting with your boss and you remember, I need to be thankful for this job. Then you stop right there as, you're, as your boss is talking and you pull out your phone and you, you fill that in. Your boss says, why are you on your phone during a meeting? You say, I'm just thanking God for my job. They're gonna think it's sarcasm. <laughs> I just wrote down how thankful to God I am for you. They're gonna go, what is wrong with you? But then you can say, no, really, look at the list. And you can tell them about how good God is to you. Just make this list. And thank God for everything. I'm just telling you, you have to be super intentional about this, or you can just miss so many of the things that God is doing in your life and giving to you every single minute of every day. And if you don't have, I'm just, like by the end of seven days, there's going to be, like I'm not even exaggerating, there's going to be hundreds of things on this list. Do you believe it? There's gonna be hundreds of things on this list. So do that this week. So that's the gratitude part of this. And then there's the surrender part. Because the, this is so important because, listen, the default setting in every human being is that the kingdom of the world is in us. That's our default setting. The kingdom of the world. We're born, cute little babies, okay, cute little babies. The kingdom of the world is in them. And they, by the time they're one, one and a half, I mean, you see it. The kingdom 
of the world. We are naturalized citizens of this world. And by that, I mean that the world's system, the beliefs, the world's ways of doing things are built into the very fabric of who we are as human beings. But at the moment that a person exercises faith in Jesus Christ, at the moment that they confess those sins, that they surrender to Jesus Christ, believing in his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, in that very moment, the kingdom of this world in us has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Savior, Jesus Christ, in us. That's what happens at conversion. Now that has, if that's true, if at the moment we're converted, the moment we become Christians, that this is true, the kingdom of God floods into us, that has staggering implications for us as Christians, doesn't it? How we spend our lives now will be like this, the entirety of our life. I came to Jesus when I was 15, and since that day, 43 years, it is an exercise every single day in pushing the kingdom of this world out of my life and allowing the kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ to have full reign every single day. Subduing our sinfulness and surrendering to Christ's righteousness. And I can, I can hear the objections from you because as I was writing this, I was going, I object. Because you know the phrase, easier said than done. You know that phrase? So I can say, yes, the kingdom of God is in my life because I became a Christian. Yes, I need to be subduing that every, you know, subduing the, the kingdom of this world in my life every single day. I can say those things. I can make a verbal assent to those things, but it's easier said than done. Living the surrendered life is terribly difficult. And C.S. Lewis said it well when he said, no one knows how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. And that is the challenge of the Christian life, to grant the kingdom of God greater and greater reign in your life as you mature in Christ. And I saw a tweet this week from Matt Smethurst that, that just really punches the point of how difficult this is. So take, take a look at this, because he just puts it into four little couplets. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. See, the problem with following your heart, and we all hear this all the time, well, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. We tell little kids, just follow your heart. The heart, you know what the prophet Jeremiah wrote? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart's a disaster. Okay, don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus, that's what he said. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus said, believe in me. Like, are you the God in this relationship? Believe in yourself, believe in yourself. Are you the God? See, for most people, they actually are. Jesus said, believe in me. The world says, discover yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, be true to you. And this is the, this is the foundational principle behind all of these issues related to gender and sexuality. Be true to you. You do you. You live your truth. And it's destroying the fabric of this world. The world says, be true to you. And Jesus says, be true to me. He's the creator after all. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I say that. I say those four things, those four little couplets. 
Matt Smethurst just like nails it. And I just go, there's a lifetime of battling it out with the kingdom of this world in those four couplets, isn't there? And it's an every single day battle. And ov- overtly sinful temptations aside, we're, we're bombarded with overtly, you know, positively, or, or, you know, humanistic positivity, positivity messaging just like this. And, and this kind of messaging, I believe, is so much more damaging to us than the overt temptations that we face. But all of it has to go if we're to be surrendered to his reign. Amen? Amen. I feel like that was a whole sermon, don't you? I have three more points. Are you excited about that? Yeah. All right, here's the second one. The kingdom of God in me and in you also means humble worship before his throne. I already said, like a worship service broke out. As soon as the seventh trumpet was sound, sounded, a, a, a worship service broke out. So between those two verses that we looked at, if you, if you were observant, we looked at verse 15 and 17. Verse 16 now comes up. We read verse 16 where it says, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. Not the first time we've seen this. You can go back to Revelation 4 and see it. And it seems that heaven is always, heaven's always on the verge of a worship service breaking out. That's what it seems uh, what it's like there. And imagine if we were to go through every day, imagine if we were to always just be on the verge of breaking out in worship. Imagine that we were so in love with and, and, and so wanting to express adoration for our God that we feel like at any moment we could spontaneously explode into praise and worship. These 24 elders do exactly that at the trumpet blast, knowing that this is going to culminate the redemptive plans of God for this world. And these elders demonstrate for us what worship in eternity looks like. It's humble. They're on their faces before God. And it's Godward. It's directed at him, at at the throne. And it comes in the, in the context of what we talked about in the last one. It, it comes in the context of surrender to his reign. And if you don't fully surrender to God's reign, then you should not expect to be able to worship him like this. If you are not surrendered to his reign, you should not expect to be able to worship like this. And if you come in to a worship service like this when you go, well, you know, it's just some nice songs. Some nice songs. You're not moved. There's not feeling like you're not having some kind of a, a, a transcendent experience with God that, that is not actually seizing your heart. Then the first question you need to ask yourself is, is one of surrender. Am I actually surrendered to God? Am I even open to worshiping him in this way? I can't answer that question for you. That's between you and the Lord. These elders have no such inhibitions. There's nothing between them and God. They fall on their faces before the throne to worship him. And if I would be like them, I, if I do surrender, I will humbly worship before his throne. Worship is like this, is humble. It's, it's, it's God work. It ensures that the focus is on on God, on Jesus, and and not at all on me. I mean, just think about it. Okay, 
And this is also going to go in your thank you list, by the way. But, but what do we bring to the table of our own salvation? Like, what do we bring to our own salvation? The answer is nothing. We bring nothing to the table but our own sinfulness. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This, this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is a grace gift from him. Not of works, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. No pride. You didn't do any of it. You didn't bring anything to the table. You didn't even bring your own faith to the table. That is a grace gift from him. And so, and so make worship. When you, when you come to worship the Lord, whether it's like this in the community or whether it's at home on your own, make worship about God, not you, which means ditching the attitude that, you know, I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, you weren't supposed to get anything out of it, Karen. You came here to worship Jesus. God is the one who's meant to be adored and worshiped. Really hoping there's no one named Karen here today, by the way. <laughs> You're to sing about him. You're to declare him to be worthy. You're not singing about you because you're not worthy. And when we orient ourselves to this kind of humble Godward worship, we'll prioritize it in our personal lives. We'll prioritize it in, in the context of the gathered church. We'll want to be here with God's people for our times of worship. We'll want to ensure that what we're singing and what we're saying is theologically sound. We'll see it as something that engages heart, soul, mind, and body. Humble worship before the throne of God. It happens when the kingdom of God is supplanting the kingdom of this world in each of our hearts. And it's preparing us so well for that eternity that we anticipate when we'll be with those 24 elders. We'll be in that group. We'll be singing these songs before the throne of our sovereign Lord. Here's another. Ready? Ready for this one? The kingdom of God in me means joyful rest in his justice. There's not a lot of justice today. I mean, despite the very best efforts of some in our society, there's far more injustice. Our, our society is actually quite a disaster on this front, and we can't stay on top of all of the evil happening in our cities and in our countries. I went out flying. Uh, Peter's over here to my left, and he has a plane. We went out flying on Thursday, and we, we flew over Aurelia. I'm not picking on that city. That's just the city we flew over. We flew over Aurelia, and from the air, I said to Peter, from the air, everything looks perfect. I'm not saying Aurelia is not a beautiful city. It's on a waterfront. It's a great town. But when you fly over any city, you fly over any city, it looks perfect. It looks orderly. It looks structured. It, it, from the air, it's peaceful. And I started thinking, because we weren't at a super high altitude, I started thinking about all those homes down there. And I went, like, how much angst, how much tension, how much anger how much relational discord, how many addictions, you know, 
all the, all the carnage, all the heartache, all the brokenness that's all over the city of Aurelia. And the air just looks so perfect. It looks so, so pristine. That's our world. You can step back from it and think things are okay. But when you start getting down into it and you start looking at it and you realize this is a mess. We're living in the midst of a disaster that's only getting worse. Not that I want to pick on Americans. It'll take the attention off of Aurelia for a minute. But you think about American history, you think about all the efforts, all the bloodshed uh, in the American uh, Civil War, the emancipation of the slaves. Then a hundred years later, a hundred years later, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, trying to advance things even a little further. And then fast forward from the 60s, 50 years now to where we are. And you wonder on the racial front if any progress has been made at all. Think about all the multicultural messaging in our schools and among our students in the media. And think about all the racial tension and the angst that's so entrenched in the human heart and we can't help it. Sinners. Kingdom of the world is still so entrenched in our hearts. And John sees this. John, John's right down in it, looking at what God is revealing to him in this book. God, John sees it in verse 18. He says, the nations raged. They resisted God's ways. They always have. Always thought they were superior to God. People think they're superior to God. Countries, nations, empires think they're superior to God. They never want to be ruled over him. They want to rule themselves. In their stubborn rebellion, they showed themselves to be, and you have to look right to the end of verse 18 to see that they are the destroyers of the earth. We're ruining the very place where God put us, but this reference to the earth isn't about the planet. It's not an environmental message. This is about the world system. This is about how we've laid things out. We're destroying ourselves. We've taken the beauty of what God created and whether intentionally or carelessly, we are seeing to its destruction through moral decay and subversion. The original word here for destroying in the Greek, for destroying and destroyer is variously translated and defined as this, to lay waste, to deprave, to pervert, or to cause the moral ruin of. And that's what we're doing. We're destroying our own home. This is what we, that's what we do. We ruin things. God creates and we ruin it. Now, I was thinking, I was just thinking about this. I was sitting at my desk on Friday. I was like thinking about this and I was like, but you know, I have all these these well-intentioned politicians, some of them are very genuine of heart and they run for office. And they want to they do the very best for the city, the province, the country, whatever jurisdiction it happens to be. Yet I was thinking about this and, and, and really politics is a job in which you ruin one thing to fix something else. 
You can't fix it all. So I'll break this, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I'm gonna break this in order to fix this other thing. In Ontario, you can build the roads and they are building roads. Can't even hardly get to church anymore. But you can't build roads and fund hospitals and education. So you can fix one thing which desperately needed fixing. I wasn't sure how much longer some of the bridges and barriers were going to hold up. But you can't fund it all. So you fix one thing, you break two other things. And that's kind of the way it goes with politics. That's the way it goes in the world. That's just not Barry. That's not just Ontario. That's not just Canada. That's like everywhere. Read a foreign paper once in a while. You'll see that everybody's struggling with the same things. And I'm glad for those rare cases when governments get it right and justice is served. But at the end, God will bring about his perfect justice. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what we're longing for. These 24 elders were saying, but your wrath, your judgment came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants. And you see two aspects of justice there. We'll talk about that in a moment. He talks about all the servants of God, the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. And when, and when, when justice comes to those who are the righteous, it's restorative justice. God's making up for all the losses. And he's going to bless those who are his those who have been abused and hurt. That's restorative justice. But then also, his justice comes for destroying the destroyers of the earth, and that's retributive justice. God's going to punish the abusers and comfort the abused. And in a very specific sense, this is addressing persecuted Christians. This book was written to Christians in the first century, the very end of the first century, who are being persecuted for their faith, for living gospel-centered lives. And God's going to vindicate them and he's going to vindicate us. But in a more general sense, God is saying something about all matters of justice in the world, which is something God is so interested in. And when the gospel truly transforms us, it makes us sensitive to matters of injustice. It ought to. And you should be concerned if you are not interested in matters of injustice and you call yourself a Christian. Tim Keller's wrote a ton, written a ton on this matter of justice and, and gospel transformation and how it makes us sensitive to these issues. And I put a link in the notes to an article that is really long. And, um, and it's one of four parts, but if you're super interested in this topic, uh, this is something you could pursue. The link is there in the notes. But Keller said this, biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules and guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God, and it is the outworking of that character which is never less than just. And that transforms us. If that's God's character, we're trying to have his character, then that's going to transform and change us so that we have his mind about these things. And so Keller describes in the article retributive and restorative justice, a justice that punishes and justice that rewards. And those who in this life have acted in unjust ways, victimizing people will face retribution, racism, abuse, genocide, power mongering, criminality, the exploitation of the poor and vulnerable will not go unpunished. The justice of God is the best argument, in fact, against universalists who say that everyone is, in the end is going to be saved. Well, I just believe God's going to save everybody in the end. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what God you believe in. It doesn't mean if you, don't, if you don't even believe in God. I just believe everybody's going to get into heaven. God's going to be kind to everybody. 
But that, that violates the, the whole notion of the justice of God. How does someone who is abused find comfort in that? How do the victims of genocide feel about their perpetrators escaping justice? Apart from repentance, none of us are saved. Judgment is necessary to set all things right, and thankfully, God knows this because we forget it. All right, here's the last one. You and I can have a firm confidence in his plan. I feel like this flows right out of the justice point. That if we know that God knows these things and God is going to care for all of these things in a perfect way, that he is both going to punish and reward, then you and I can have a firm confidence in that plan. We can trust him. And when we have the kingdom of God inside of us, we can rest in the certainty of what he is doing. Christians should not fret at all about what is going on in the world today. Christians should not fret at all about what's going on in the world today. But like I follow a lot, I'm pretty active on social media. I follow a lot of people on social media, a lot of Christians on social media, and I look at their posts and they're fretting about what's going on in the world today. Where's your faith in Jesus? And I wonder, have you read? Have you read this? You're fretting about what's going on in the world. You call yourself a Christian. This is our book. And the book of Revelation tells us how it turns out. But why are you worried? What's all the fretting about? What's all the angst? What's all the anger about? So many professing believers are so upset about events, about politics. Politics is broken. It's a mess. It's a disaster. Don't need any more posts about that. Everybody gets it. The politicians know. So upset about this or that issue, worried about so many things that are out of their control. And I'm, again, I'm thinking the whole time, read the Bible. This is the way it's going to go. So Christian, rest, relax. Have confidence in God's plan. He's working it all out. In the meantime, live the gospel, proclaim the gospel, tell people around you about the gospel. They need to hear it. The government in our country, reprehensible, is opening up assisted dying for those who are mentally ill. If you're not horrified by this, there's something about the gospel you don't understand. And I want to say to everybody, your government wants you dead because it'll be cheaper for them. And Jesus wants you alive so that you can have hope. And I want to tell every person struggling with mental illness, come to Jesus. Your government has abandoned you. Come to Jesus. That's the only hope that people have. Have confidence in that plan. Proclaim that gospel. The world needs this hope. Look at verse 19. God's temple, John sees this. John's, God's, uh, God's temple in heaven was open. John is seeing, he looks in and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. He sees the Ark of the Covenant in his, his temple. Do you know how, how weird that is that he would see that? You say, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know why that's a big deal. Right, because everything you know about the Ark of the Covenant, you learned from Indiana Jones. 
I'm not wrong about that. Okay, the ark, I think we have a picture of it, not the actual ark, because <laughs> Indy was right, we don't know where it is. Okay, so Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box overlaid with gold, two cherubim on top, um, holders for two handles where the priest would carry it. They weren't allowed to touch it. Inside of the ark were the tablets of the law that Moses was given. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was behind a very thick curtain. Only one person could ever go in the Holy of Holies and only once per year, and that was the high priest. No one else ever saw it. And now John is looking into the temple in heaven and he can see it. It's open. This is an awesome moment for us as the sons and daughters of the king. The ark was a symbol of the presence of God and, and what's being communicated to us by John seeing this is access. We have access to God. We can, we can be with him. We can talk to him. When Jesus died on the cross, you maybe remember the story when Jesus died on the cross in the moment that he breathed his last, Matthew 27, 51 records that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And all of a sudden, people could look into the Holy of Holies. The priests, at the very least, could look in and see the Holy of Holies in the ark there. God had opened up the Holy of Holies in that moment for all eternity. Jesus became the sole mediator and the final sacrifice for sin. There was no longer a need for priests, no longer a need for mediator, no longer a need for temple or sacrifices because everyone had access. And the Ark of the Covenant also represented promise because it is an Ark of the covenant. It represents the agreement between God and humanity, which humanity was never very good at keeping, but God was perfect at keeping. As we re read Revelation, we're seeing the fulfillment of all God's promises. And this was especially important to the original readers as they struggled through hardship and persecution. As we think about access and promise, we're heading ourselves toward that final fulfillment in Revelation 21.3, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scriptures. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Access granted, promise kept. And that should infuse you with confidence right now as you seek to push the kingdom of the world out of your own life and allow the kingdom of God to have full reign. What John saw here was accompanied by flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, God manifesting signs to demonstrate his full sovereignty over all things and the authenticity of his word. And I do hope, Christian, that if you that, that, that reading this and hearing this, you would have a firm, unwavering confidence in his plan. Because his kingdom in all its fullness is coming. And until that day comes, as we anticipate it, you and I should be continuing to push back the world in our own lives. Allowing the kingdom of God to have full reign in us now. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help us in this moment to apply the truths that we've uh, heard here this morning. It's a 
Again, Father, week by week, we're confronted with powerful images of what for us is still future. And God, I pray that this word would be changing us and transforming us, even as we, as we work hard to be thankful people, as we think about what it means to be living out the justice of God now, as we think about all the implications of what we've heard here today, God, help us to push out the kingdom of this world from our own hearts and to allow your kingdom to flood in. Thank you, God, for hearing this prayer. Continue to work in us. Be patient with us, Father, as we seek your kingdom. And God, we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.